today I want to talk about my real beef with home ownership. While I've published plenty of math-ridden articles in the past discussing the questionable at best claim that home ownership is a good investment when judged against any of the same characteristics used to assess liquid investments, today I want to dig down into what I'm calling my real beef with home ownership. So strap in. Because sure, you can go back and you can read my post about when the math supports buying your primary residence or the one about why we have chosen to rent despite having more than half a million dollars. Or you can go for the jugular with the J.L. Collins piece entitled Why Your House is a Terrible Investment. But I don't know that any of those academic discussions do a great job of distilling the actual issue that I have with homeownership as a concept. And today I intend to do just that. It's a little bit of honesty hour, yes? For starters, every single time I talk about homeownership in even a slightly negative light, I receive messages and comments that are quite nasty. To quote a recent one, you're just not ready to talk about the math. So have fun staying a renter and paying your landlord's mortgage forever. Okay, first of all, ouch. Second of all, if anyone took such a combative attitude about literally any other financial decision, like imagine if I came for that person and said, hey, have fun with that piddly 401k contribution and retiring when you're 75 because you're never going to get there otherwise, I would sound like an asshole. There's something about this homeownership discussion that tends to just quickly become condescending. And frankly, I don't think the math of ownership can support that level of you're an idiot if you don't buy mentality. The more apt sentiment is probably you won't lose money on your house necessarily, but you're lucky to break even considering the constant outflow of cash. And it really just gets under my skin that renters are constantly peppered with patronizing language, especially the worst one, you're just paying your landlord's mortgage. So, okay, those initial qualms aside, let's dive in. My intention today is to remove the buy-at-all-costs pressure from young people who are not ready to buy. I plan to buy a home someday when it makes sense for me. And that's the energy that I want everyone to have, that nothing is wrong with renting if it's what makes the most sense for you. There's no rush to buy, right? Like, especially if you're not ready. I've talked to way too many millennials who regret buying their home because they spent every last dollar on their down payment and realized after the fact when it was too late that their monthly payments were stretching them thin and they didn't have the cash reserves necessary for those unpredictable maintenance costs. Some went into debt, some had to get loans from their parents, all of them wish they had known ahead of time what they were getting themselves into. But why did they do it? Because they were sold on this idea that it's a great investment no matter what and that renting is shameful. Two pieces of conventional wisdom that I think can be pretty easily disproven and save people a lot of trouble. That relentless buying is best energy rhetoric, it just exacerbates this problem. I don't want to discourage someone from buying a home, but I wish more people were willing to be honest that it's just not always the best decision for everyone at every point in time. And it's a huge decision, one that has major financial consequences. And rushing into it or telling people that no matter what, unilaterally, it's going to be the best thing for them because of FOMO or a sense of obligation, it's just an unfair pressure that I wish we could do away with entirely. 
And to me, that starts with cutting out this patronizing bullshit that renting is throwing your money away. That categorically puts down a very perfectly valid way to pay for housing. And by the way, a lot of what you pay for the house that you own is just throwing money away too. Very little of the costs actually build equity. A homeowner with a mortgage is paying rent too. They're just paying rent to the bank. So my primary issue with this homeownership discussion is the way that it is treated like a unilaterally better choice. It always frustrated me that the discussion around homeownership was often not much of a discussion at all. It was a haughty declaration that it's the best way to build wealth and that buying is always better than renting. First of all, anytime anyone says anything is always better, that's a cue to take a closer look. Rarely is anything always better, especially something that's as hyper-local as real estate, but more on that later. I'm sure there are plenty of circumstances where buying really does make more financial sense for someone, but it bothers me that those in the ownership camp aren't even open to a discussion about the numbers. There's a reason why the New York Times and NerdWallet and Bankrate have a rent versus buy calculator, because it's a decision that needs to be calculated. Those types of tools wouldn't exist if buying were always better, would they? So you may be wondering, how could this be something that can go either way? Like, doesn't this decision to buy a home involve the same trade-offs, costs, and benefits for everyone? Theoretically, sure, but in practice, no. Why? Because the decision to buy a home is inherently a very localized one. You're not investing in real estate generally. You're investing in one particular property, in one particular zip code, in one particular city, in one particular state. So in that way, it's like placing a huge localized bet on one piece of property. Why does that matter? Because the exact location of the property plays a huge role in whether or not it will end up being a quote unquote good financial decision. Objectively speaking, we're, we're not talking about the sentimentality of homeownership right now. We're just talking about the numbers. And anytime you see someone arguing either side of this case, the rent or the buy on the internet, it's worthwhile to know where they live. Obviously, someone who lives in a place with low property values and or low property taxes is likely going to feel like it's a no-brainer because for them, it actually might be a no-brainer. I have always skewed pro-renter because as an adult, I've only ever lived in places where property taxes were higher than anywhere else in the country, but rents were average or property values were extremely inflated and hard to justify. That's my hypothesis about why both camps are so entrenched, because both sides are right, so to speak, for their specific location. Take Dallas, for example. In my previous zip code, 75206, the median home value, according to Zillow, was 500991 Property taxes were 1.93% of the tax assessed value, So the taxes on your median home would cost $9,669 per year, again, according to Zillow and Smart Asset Tax Calculator. That's your taxes alone clocking in at $805 per month to say nothing of insurance, your mortgage principal, your interest, your maintenance. My total rent to live in that same neighborhood was $871 per month, barely more than the property tax alone would have been. 
There's a reason the Dallas Morning News does stories periodically about how renting was a lot less expensive than buying in a lot of big Texas cities, and I'll link it in the show notes. That specific example is another reason why it always bothered me when people would say, you're just paying your landlord's mortgage. That might be true, but that doesn't mean that I'm getting the shaft. Landlords can't always charge what they need to in order to be profitable. They can only charge what the local rental market will bear. That's why rental property investing is hard, because finding properties that actually create positive cash flow is difficult. We'll dive into that part in a moment, but before we do, the part that probably needs to be stated explicitly is that it only makes sense to rent if you are investing the difference that would have been spent on a house. This is maybe the biggest piece of the puzzle that grinds my gears about the pro-homeownership at all costs argument, and it goes a little something like this. People are bad at saving, and a home is a forced savings program. People won't save without that one, therefore buying a home is the best way for someone to save. And I think that's what they call a logical fallacy because sure, it can be true that people are bad at saving and that a home is a forced savings program, but to then conclude that a home is the best way for someone to save, it doesn't jive. Here's a little tip. A savings program that requires a constant outflow of cash that you don't get back is probably not the best one. If I was renting for 871 per month instead of owning a $500,991 home in the same neighborhood for 2,717 all in, that would have been the monthly cost, 2,717. But I was spending the $1,846 difference instead of investing it, then sure, you could make the point that I'd be better off buying because ultimately none of that 2,717 would have been invested each month. But if I did invest the cost difference, the $1,846 difference between what I was renting for and what I could have bought for, I'd almost certainly come out ahead. But that's why the lack of nuance in the rent versus buy discussions gets so under my skin because the proponents of buy often retort that it's unfathomable that a renter would invest the difference in the stock market. That it's unbelievable that anyone would opt to invest the tens of thousands of dollars that they would have spent on unrecoverable costs like HVAC systems, new roofs, washers and dryers. Like that's why the answer to is it better to rent or buy is it completely and totally depends. It depends on what you do with the money that you're not spending on a house. It depends on what the local market is like and how quickly it's appreciating. It depends on the property taxes. It depends on how expensive rent is. If you're truly not going to save, then maybe buying a house is better for you. And hey, that's not to say you won't get lucky and your home won't appreciate wildly. It's just to say that that's speculation, not investing. So that brings us back around to the rental property investing angle. Ironically, the more that I learn about rental property investing, the more my stance on the primary residence is solidified. I've been reading a book by the writer of the blog, Invest for More, about how to build a rental property empire. And this is what he has to say about banking on appreciation. And keep in mind, this is someone who has literally built his fortune on real estate and is trying to sell books teaching others that real estate is a good idea too. So he has nothing to gain from painting a negative picture here. This is the quote. Most investors quickly tire of writing checks on properties with negative cash flow. As I discussed, most investors underestimate their expenses, and with negative cash flow, that can mean they are paying out hundreds of dollars each month on one property. While those investors are waiting for the house to appreciate, they are losing thousands each year due to negative cash flow. 
The investor realizes very quickly that hoping the housing market will increase while they continue to lose money doesn't make any sense. The investor's only choice is to continue to dump cash into the property or to sell at a loss. Even if the investor can sell the house for as much as they bought it for or more, selling costs will eat up all of the profit. This is the part I want you to pay attention to, okay? Selling costs usually total 6 to 10% of the value of a house. When you buy for appreciation, it takes huge market gains to make the money back that you spend on selling costs and your expenses. Okay, that's from a rental property investor who basically says he will only buy a house if it will positively cash flow, meaning the only way that he thinks you're going to make money on real estate in a way that's predictable is by guaranteeing that the person that's renting from you is basically paying for what you need to pay for and then some. That appreciation is not something that you can bank on. But with the primary residence, appreciation is all you get unless you're house hacking and you have somebody renting you know, a room in your house. But there's this weird misconception that every single landlord is making money hand over fist on their tenants, when in reality, there are entire books and courses devoted to helping people find good deals because it's hard to make money on a property. It's not as simple as buy it and rent it out to someone else. And that's why at the end of this episode, I'm going to actually take you through an example that I did for the rental home that I am renting right now and all of the real numbers. But that last line is the ultimate reason why this debate is so frustrating to me because it often for people boils down to, well, I bought my house for X and I sold it for Y. How could you say that that wasn't definitely a win? They see the difference between Y, what they're selling it for, and X, what they purchased it for, and they assume that that's the whole story. But the definition of return on investment is your total gains divided by your total costs. Too few homeowners actually keep track of their total costs. They see the total benefit, the Y, and they assume that their total cost was the purchase price or the X. The result is what they perceive their gain to be. And it feels good, right? It's like, ooh, I made a great decision. And then they tell other people that buying a home is the best decision. But if you bought for 200,000 and you sold for 300,000 after five years, keep in mind that's more than 10% per year appreciation, which is unheard of. Maybe not this year in 2021, but historically speaking, unheard of. You would think that you made a 50% return on your investment because you bought for 200 and sold for 300, but your total costs weren't $200,000. That was just the purchase price. Your total costs include the down payment, all of your mortgage payments of principal and interest, all of the property tax, all of the insurance payments, all of the maintenance costs, the closing costs when you purchased the home, the broker fees when you sold the home, and lest we not forget, the cost to pay back the bank. So what would that look like? Conservatively, let's say you put 20% down. That'd be $40,000. All of the mortgage payments, the principal and interest over those 60 months, the five years would be $681 a month, which sounds pretty good, right? Like 681, that's not bad at all. So $40,860 over the five-year period. All the property tax, typically that's going to be around 1% per year, but it can be higher or lower depending on where you live. And another reason why this is so hyper-local and it can really skew the numbers. So assuming the house never got reassessed for taxes and was valued at $200,000 the entire time, that'd be $2,000 per year times five, so $10,000 in taxes. 
All of your insurance payments, typically that's going to be 0.5% per year of the total value of the home. So if you assume the same, it was always valued at 200000 You never increased your premiums. That'd be $1,000 per year times five for 5000 total. All of your maintenance costs, we can assume it was a new build. Let's say that it wasn't old. It didn't require much maintenance. So conservatively, 0.5% for maintenance per year. That's $5,000 a year. I mean, I'm sorry, that's $5,000 total. Uh, $1,000 a year. And then you've got the closing costs when you purchased the home. So typically this is between three and 4% of the total value of the home, but these vary wildly by state. So you should look it up for your own state. Let's say it is that average three to 4% though, you'd pay 7,000 in closing costs. The broker fees when you sell, typically about 6% of the sale price. So 300,000 times 6%, 18,000 in broker fees. And then, of course, we have to pay back the bank. After five years and 20% down with a 30-year fixed rate mortgage and a 3% interest rate, you'd have about $142,250 left on your mortgage of $160,000 to pay back the bank. And if that feels high to you, that's because it is. The first several years of mortgage payments are almost entirely interest, so you don't really make much of a dent in the principal you'd have about $18,000 of equity after five years, even though you made $40,000 of payments. So although the total costs are not $200,000, the total costs are 268,110. Again, these are conservative estimates. This assumes that you didn't do any other renovations, that nothing major broke, and it assumes that you're home appreciated by more than 10% per year, which is outrageous. So $100,000 of market gains over five years translated to $31,890 in actual profit. So in other words, you put 268,110 in and you're getting 300,000 out after five years. That means your annualized return on investment was 2.27% per year. That is my beef with the pro-home ownership at all costs argument. An annualized ROI of 2.27% is, to quote my friend Rebecca on Ted Lasso, bullocks. And it's a far cry from, I bought for $200,000 and sold for $300,000. An annualized appreciation rate for a house of 10% or more sustained over time is pretty much unheard of. So it is happening this year in five or six markets nationwide, like Austin, Denver. But generally speaking, over time, it is unheard of and it's not sustainable. So if somebody in Austin is telling you buying a home is the best thing they ever did financially, you can look at their market and say, well, yeah, that makes sense. But you can't take advice from someone that saw 40% gains this year and think that your home in the middle of Wichita is going to do the same thing. This, again, underscores why this discussion is so hyper-local. Much of the Midwest barely appreciates because the demand to live there is lower than the supply of homes. It's Econ 101, which is a class that I got to be in for the record. But if there's an area where a lot of people want to live and not a lot of space, think New York City, the prices will be high. If it's an area where there's a lot of land but not a lot of interest, the prices will be low. That's why regionally we see so much variation. Between the wildly different appreciation rates regionally, the differences in property taxes and other costs that vary by state, and the rental markets, this decision is not black and white. It's even impacted by the amount of time you plan to stay in a home. The longer you stay, the more likely it is that you'll come out ahead, but 
it's hard to deny that the biggest factor is where you are buying. My current rental home is a $3,000 a month home on a great street in Colorado, in Fort Collins. So for fun, I wanted to do an experiment to see how much money my landlord makes on me. So my rent is $3,000 per month. According to Zillow, she purchased the home for $604,000 in 2016, and today it's estimated at $838,000. She completely renovated the downstairs. I'd estimate that at least $50,000 went into the kitchen. She knocked down walls. She replaced all of the appliances with top-of-the-line appliances. She redid the cabinets. She redid the countertops. So we'll say that her total out-of-pocket costs were 20% down, or $120,800, $50,000 of renovations, and then the monthly payments. So mortgage principal, interest, property taxes, insurance, you know the drill. The house was built in 1900, so I'm pretty sure she's paid a fair bit in maintenance as well, even just based on the work that's been done since we've lived here. We've gotten fresh paint on the house and on the fence, sprinkler system work, landscaping, a new dryer. This is all just in about six months' time. But for the sake of simplicity, we'll say that her initial out-of-pocket costs were only the down payment and the 50k in renovations, so $170,800. According to Zillow, her monthly payments, excluding maintenance, are $2,763 per month. So that assumes, again, her purchase price of $604, her down payment of 20%, which is an assumption that I'm making, and that she got a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage with a 4% interest rate which would have been more typical of a 2016 timeframe. Granted, she could have refinanced, so I don't actually know. I've never asked. I'm just going with averages for the area. And the property tax here is pretty low. It's only 0.6% per year. So I factored that in too. But between her initial costs, the 170800 and her current monthly costs of 2763 using some of the predefined assumptions here, her total cost outlay over the last five years is $336,540. Remember how my rent is $3,000 a month? So she's netting barely a $300 profit each month or $3,600 a year on $336,000 invested. That's a 1% annual return. Funny enough, though, this checks out. When I met with her and discussed renting this home from her, I made a joke about how at least now I'd be the one paying for her mortgage. And she basically laughed and said, well, yeah, but I'm really just covering my costs here. I just don't want to sell this house. I love this house too much. I put way too much work into it. And I want to move, but I don't want to let go of this one. That, my friends, is where the human element of real estate comes into favor for renters. This is not unusual. There are tons of people who purchased a single family home without the intention to ever turn it into a rental property. They never ran the numbers on it. They never checked whether it was a good quote unquote investment. They just no longer wish to live there, but don't want to sell it. So investment-wise, this is a terrible investment property when you look at cash returned for cash outlaid, but this neighborhood can't support a rental rate much higher than three grand. This individual just wants someone who will take care of her house to live in it and cover her costs, and I am happy to do that in exchange for the ability to live in a home that is candidly way out of my price range so that I can have a better quality of life. 
That would be my hack if I were you. Don't rent from some big conglomerate company that has their numbers perfected and went into the game with the intention of making money. Rent from a regular person who's listing their house on Zillow. You can go back, you can see what they paid for it, and you can estimate their monthly cost to see if the rent is fair or not. Assuming that the market is perfectly rational, especially a rental market, is mistake number one. No market that's completely determined by human beings, especially one that's as emotional as housing, ever will be. So there you have it, my friends. That is my real beef with the home ownership debate. It's not that I'm anti-home ownership. I'm just anti-telling everybody and their mothers that it's absolutely, without question, the best decision for them. So they shouldn't even bother running the numbers, right? Definitely run the numbers. Use one of the calculators. See if it makes sense for you. See if you actually want to live in that house for five to 10 years or longer. Because as you saw in the example, moving after five years, you've barely made a dent in your equity to begin with. You've practically just been renting it the entire time by paying interest on the loan. Thanks for joining me today. That was my real beef with homeownership, and I will see you next time. Please don't slide in my DMs with something nasty.